History this week, October 11th, 1995. I'm Sally Helm. Professor Mario Molina is in his office at MIT. It's a normal day for him. This school year, he's getting deep into some new measurement techniques with his grad students and teaching undergrads the basics of atmospheric chemistry. But while he's at his desk, the phone rings. It's a long-distance call. So I got a call from Sweden. That's Molina himself in an oral history interview conducted by members of the Science History Institute. Now, a call from Sweden is something that a lot of scientists and academics dream of. Because Sweden is home to the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. And every October, they call up some lucky researchers out of the blue and tell them, you have won the Nobel Prize. Today, one person getting that surreal phone call is Mario Molina. I remember being quite surprised because some people have mentioned I might, I was on some list, but then I thought it was not not very serious. (laughs) But it is, in fact, serious. The Nobel Prize is indeed a big event. Shortly after this, across the country, another phone rings. And another scientist, Don Blake, misses the call. Hello, no one is available to take your call. A little while later. I'm in the shower, and uh, my wife comes up and says, Donald, did Sherry win the Nobel Prize? Sherry Rowland, Blake's mentor and good friend. They've been talking about this possibility for years. Blake would say, Listen, Sherry, I don't want to find out about you getting the Nobel on the TV. And he kind of smiled. He says, Don, if I get a call, I'll call you. He says, but it's not going to happen. They'd had that exchange year after year, at the start of every October, when the Nobel Prize in chemistry is typically announced. But that year, 1995, Blake had lost track of time. I put a towel on, you know, and I ran downstairs and he had called and uh, left a message on at, at like six o'clock. Don, this is Sherry. You might want to turn on the TV. I got a call from Stockholm and I put my hand on the wall by the phone where I was listening to this message and I just started crying. Roland and Melina have both since died. They'd worked together in a lab at UC Irvine, the lab Don Blake runs today. And Blake remembers just what a big deal this was. This really sort of validated atmospheric sciences. And this was the world, or the Nobel Committee at least, saying, you know, this work is important. Part of the surprise was because there there, there were practically no precedents for Nobel, Nobel Prize in environmental issues. These two scientists, and a third in Germany, are the first to win a Nobel Prize for work in the environmental sciences. In a press release, the Nobel Committee thanks them for having, quote, contributed to our salvation from a global environmental problem that could have catastrophic consequences. Today, we go inside a lab that helped to save the Earth. How did two scientists with no background in atmospheric chemistry identify a dangerous, invisible reaction that was putting the planet in peril? And why was the whole world able to pull together to prevent the worst?
quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The 1995 Nobel Prize was a first for the environmental sciences. And it was also a first on a different, more personal level. Mario Molina was the first Mexican-born scientist to win the prize. The child of a Mexican diplomat, he spent his youth between Mexico City and a boarding school in Switzerland. And he was passionate about science from the beginning. At some stage, I was able to borrow bathroom my house that was not in use, so I really converted that to a laboratory. He remembers playing with a toy microscope his parents had gotten him as a gift, inspecting a drop of dirty water. And the enormous fascination I had with, with a very simple microscope, looking at the drop and seeing it beaming with life. In his bathroom slash lab, Molina experiments with chemistry, doing the sort of stuff that a college freshman would typically learn. By the time he was in college himself, he had launched a chemistry-based business with his friends. They were manufacturing a product that was needed to create synthetic foam. They then sold their product to companies throughout the country. Mexico had a peculiarity at that time that if you could manufacture something in Mexico, they had to buy it from you. So we had all the foam industry depending on this Garage experience. <laughs> Molina eventually gets his PhD at UC Berkeley, working in photochemistry, the chemistry of light. And he starts going with his advisor to meetings among California chemists. That's where he meets Sherry Rowland, a professor at UC Irvine. Sherry Rowland was a very pleasant person. I, we had similar interests about the nature of chemical reactions. So this was a natural thing. Molina joins Roland's lab in Irvine as a postdoctoral student in 1973. That's where he'll eventually meet Don Blake, who also got his start as one of Roland's students. I had this great respect for Sherry. He was always the big dog. The first guy was like 6'5 or 6'6 and weighed 250 pounds. So he was a, a large, imposing man. He got um, three or four letters when he was in undergraduate school for basketball. And yet, when we would be at these meetings, almost everybody wanted to come up and talk to him. Um, and, and be around him. The lab's primary research focus in the early 1970s was on something called hot atom chemistry. Basically, putting molecules into a nuclear reactor and seeing how they broke down. So what happened in 73, Sherry had this new postdoc, Mara Molina, and um, Sherry was going over two or three uh, different possible projects that Mario could work on. One of those projects involved researching these chemicals called CFCs. So what is a CFC? What CFCs are, CFCs? are just a, a carbon with chlorine and fluorine attached to it. Chlorofluorocarbon, CFC. 
It's a type of chemical that was developed in the 1920s to replace the toxic gases that were then being used in refrigerators. CFCs were developed by GM and then sold by both GM and DuPont under the brand name Freon. Freon fluorinated hydrocarbons used as cooling agents in the coils of your refrigerators and as propellants in aerosols of all kinds. For lots of companies, CFCs were a godsend. They had so many uses for a very specific scientific reason. The chemical bonds between the carbon and the chlorine and the carbon and fluorine are strong. And so the CFC molecule is extremely happy being a CFC molecule. That's not true of all molecules. Take methane, for example. It's a carbon plus four hydrogens, but the bonds aren't as strong. So when a methane molecule is floating around in the air, something could come along and grab a hydrogen. So it leaves CH3 and then it makes water. Okay, so methane is like always having an identity crisis. It's like it runs into one other molecule, it turns into something else. CFCs are like, I know who I am and I'm sticking with that. That I'm, I'm so happy to be a CFC, yes. And not just in the air. You stick a CFC in water or in a spray can with a bunch of other molecules, nothing happens to it. It's very much like Teflon. I'm old enough to remember the commercials where they would put an egg on a Teflon frying pan. Nobody likes a fried egg that sticks to the pan. And then they could turn it over and the egg would fall off. So most egg lovers choose Teflon II certified cookware. So the analogy is, is that the CFCs didn't stick. They didn't really go into water. They didn't react chemically. They were inert. Inert. And this makes them useful in all kinds of products. Like imagine you're a perfume company. You want to put perfume in a bottle and use some other molecule to help push that perfume out of the bottle onto a wrist. CFCs are great for that. Because they were inert, because they didn't interact chemically, because they weren't water-soluble, they actually could be put in the bottle and what came out was just the perfume. This is an aerosol room deodorant. Just a press of the button... And out comes the deodorant propelled by Freon. By the time Mario Molina joins Sherry Rowland's lab, the use of Freons is increasing by about 10% each year, according to the New York Times. People are spraying chemicals out of cans left and right. It cleans and freshens the air like a spring shower. We had hairspray, we had deodorant, we had cheese spray. Never greasy, never perfumey, never messy. At the touch of your fingertip. You can help protect your home from household germs. Helps burn dried skin, feel soft, comfortable. I mean, it was just, it had lots of uses. And to top it all off, people thought CFCs were safe. Precisely because they were inert and non-reactive. They'd just hang out in the atmosphere, minding their own business, not causing any reactions, all good. At the time, people thought of the atmosphere as basically just... A huge dump, just like the ocean. You know, we used to think you could dump stuff in the ocean and it was so big that we could not pollute the ocean. And we 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 thought, I think, that a little spray, you know, for Don Blake spraying his underarms in the 60s, uh, I never gave it a thought because it's it's such a small amount. That's how people were thinking about it. But Sherry Rowland had a question. Do CFCs really never go away? They just build up in the atmosphere forever? 
So he goes back and eventually talks to Mario about this. Mario says, I think I'll look into this. The question is, what process would destroy these molecules in the natural environment? That's Molina explaining his research question. What process would destroy these molecules in the natural environment? And so he went in the lab and, and, and did some studies. I mean, what can you tell me about that? What did it look like? Was it cool? Like, what did well, he actually it, yes. do so, in the lab? So what Mario did as a photochemist was, let, let's say you had a baby bottle, something that you could close, but that was okay. clear. And, and he just okay. put, you know, some CFCs into the milk bottle and closed it off. Then he put that bottle in front of a light source and exposed the CFCs to different wavelengths of light. You actually have like a a radio tuner. So, you know, let's say you started at the red, you know, so you're at at, uh, 700 nanometers and that's red light. And then you go to 500, which is yellow. And then violet is down around uh, 350. And then it disappears. You go into the ultraviolet. Oh, wow, ultraviolet. I've never focused. It's like above violet. So violet is like the last thing you'll see on the uh, visible rainbow. So he's looking at these different wavelengths of light from Roy G. Biv all the way up through ultraviolet light, UV. That's what's put out by the sun. Red has the longest wavelength, so it's the least energetic. UV has a shorter wavelength, so it's more energetic. They could possibly have different effects on the CFCs. Molina turns on his machine. So he shines the light into this vessel we have our CFCs in, and 100% of the red light that went in came out. There was no absorption. It was just like people had thought. CFCs floating around in the air, no reaction. Then he went to blue, and 100% of the blue light came out. But then when he cranked it down to a more energetic ultraviolet wavelength, 100% went in and 93% came out. And then he cranked it a little bit more and and 100% went in and 86% came out. And then he cranked a little bit more and 100% went in and 50% came out. So he had found this range beneath which the CFCs could be photolyzed. Photolyzed. Broken down by light. It made sense. The UV rays are more energetic, so they're better at getting in there and breaking up those strong bonds. And the CFCs absorb that UV light. They're not just floating around unaffected by anything around them. So he goes upstairs, he says to Sherry, so look, you know, uh, turns out that uh, CFCs are inert, except for photochemistry. Where is this high energy radiation? Where is that available anywhere? They probably had to do some homework. Melina and Roland are chemists. But they're not experts on the composition of the atmosphere. In fact, at this point, in the early 1970s, what's the state of atmospheric science at that moment? Um, I'm not sure there was a state. <laughs> the field was actually in the process of really forming. Richard Stolarski was another researcher working in those early days of atmospheric science. Around the time Molina and Roland started looking into CFCs, Stolarski and his colleagues were researching rocket boosters. Those pointy things strapped to the side of a space shuttle that explode and make it blast off. Specifically, they were looking at... The potential impact of space shuttle rocket boosters in the stratosphere. The stratosphere. 
It is the second layer of the Earth's atmosphere. The first one's all around us, the stratosphere's right above. And it is home to something crucial, the ozone layer. The ozone layer blocks the ultraviolet from reaching the surface of the Earth. It's essentially a shield that lies between the Earth and the sun. Ozone itself is made up of three oxygen atoms. And the ozone layer helps protect life on Earth because... Ultraviolet would be dangerous to life because it would have the energy to break up DNA molecules. This is why the sun can cause skin cancer. UV light can mess with our cells. The ozone layer absorbs these powerful rays, protecting us. And even more than that, UV and ozone interact in this very symbiotic way. Up there in the stratosphere, UV rays break apart ozone molecules, O3, into O2 and O. But then that O atom recombines with other O2, the oxygen we breathe, that's already in the air. And the O and O2 form more O3, ozone. I would call it a renewable resource. When everything is going right, it's this beautiful cycle. But... It was just beginning in the 70s to be understood that other chemicals could speed up the loss of ozone. And when that happened, you essentially reduce the amount of ozone in the atmosphere by a little bit. That's what Stolarsky and other scientists were worried about when it came to things like rocket boosters in the stratosphere. They thought the chemicals being released could mess with the ozone cycle. To explain this, Stolarsky told us, imagine a bucket with a steady stream of water being poured in. There are little holes in the bucket. That's the ozone that's naturally broken up by UV rays. And generally, that's totally fine because of the beautiful ozone cycle. The bucket is constantly getting refilled. But certain chemicals can destroy ozone. So if you put them in the stratosphere... It's equivalent of taking that hole in the bucket and making it a little bit larger or maybe a lot larger. If there's a bigger hole in the bottom and the same amount being poured in the top... The level of the water, which is the amount of ozone in the atmosphere, goes down and reaches a new state where it's at a lower level. Scientists in the 70s knew that one element that can destroy ozone is chlorine. And to make matters worse, chlorine atoms aren't destroyed after they cause one reaction. Instead, one chlorine atom can interact with ozone after ozone after ozone. The chlorine is sitting there destroying ozone in cycles, you know, rapid. There goes another ozone, there goes another one, another one, another one, another one. One individual chlorine atom can destroy up to 100,000 ozone molecules. Scientists didn't think there was enough random chlorine floating around the stratosphere for this to matter. But Molina has just discovered that UV can break up CFC molecules, chlorofluorocarbons, meaning... All of a sudden, there's free chlorine. Don Blake again. So basically, these CFCs are transport mechanisms for taking chlorine from the Earth's surface up into the stratosphere. And that's not good. Chlorine in the Earth's stratosphere is not good. But Molina and Roland have identified a way that it might be getting there. 
set off by all those sprays from all those cans. It cleans and freshens the air like a spring shower. Never greasy, never perfumey, never messy. Blake told us, on the day that Melina and Roland connected the dots, Roland went home and his wife asked how his day had been. And he said, uh, went well, except uh, we might have discovered the end of the earth. It did sound a little far-fetched at that time. That's Mario Molina again. And just imagine yourself in his shoes. He's a 30-year-old postdoctoral student, a physical chemist, not an expert in environmental science. But if his findings are correct, he realizes the entire planet could be in danger. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In the summer of 1974, Molina and Roland get their theory of ozone depletion published in Nature, a highly respected scientific journal. A few months later, in September, they attend the annual gathering of the American Chemical Society and decide this is a great place to publicize their findings. We sort of naively organized a a press conference. Molina says they thought we'll explain everything in order. First, all the science everyone needs to know about chlorine and ozone and how the atmosphere works. And then our big theory about how CFCs are breaking down the protective ozone shield. Why was it very naive? Because that's not the way press conferences work with the media. You have to come up with a punchline at the very beginning. So practically all the reporters left at the very first. (laughs) Nobody was there when we talked about our findings. But nevertheless, this paper does start generating buzz. And there's some criticism, mostly that this is just a theory. Molina and Roland have no actual proof that CFCs are making it into the stratosphere at all. Down in the lower atmosphere, where there's not as much UV, none of this would be a problem. And they have no proof that chlorine released by the CFCs is damaging the ozone layer. But still, they decide this theory is worth raising a fuss about. Because if it turns out to be true, 10% of the ozone layer could be lost in the next 50 years. The consequences of that would be catastrophic. 
our push was, let's do the research. Let's not just uh, ignore it. This looks serious enough. If this is real, we should do something about it. Despite this potentially earth-shattering discovery, Don Blake says day-to-day life in Sherry Rowland's lab didn't change much. It was very unpretentious. He'd come down to the basement where our lab was, stick his head in the door at noon and say, lunch? And we'd tag along like, you know, ducks. It wasn't as if everyone in the lab dropped what they were doing to start studying ozone. But more broadly, a lot of scientists did start looking at this, asking, how much of that protective ozone shield might we really be losing? And they come up with different answers. It, it was a moving target in terms of how much ozone depletion is there really going to be? And that just gave ammo to the industry to just impugn people and to say, you know, it's ridiculous to, you know, uh, regulate this when there's really no proof at all that it's even going to happen. Industry was more or less reassured that these compounds are so stable, there's absolutely nothing to worry about. (laughs) Molina laughs about this later on. But at the time, the backlash from the chemical industry was pretty intense. DuPont's board chair called the ozone depletion theory, quote, a science fiction tale. The president of another chemical company, who was also himself the inventor of the spray can valve, he called UC Irvine's chancellor to complain. Cartoons mocked Sherry Rowland as Chicken Little, an alarmist who wrongly thought the sky was falling. One company's president even claimed that this was some sort of conspiracy that had connections with with the Soviet Union, something very strange, yes. Yep, they reportedly said that any criticism of CFCs was, quote, orchestrated by the Ministry of Disinformation of the KGB. This is clearly something that we wanted to attack American culture. So it was was sort of fun. The chemical industry also poured millions of dollars into funding research that might disprove this whole CFC theory. I just remember over the years that they really have bad luck because all the research that they were funding was supporting our ideas. And some politicians were paying attention. In the late 70s and early 80s, the U.S. and several other countries actually banned the use of non-essential CFCs in spray cans. But spray cans were only part of the problem. That was perhaps the easier target at the beginning. I remember I was a little uncomfortable. We didn't say, well, sure, it's, it's important for spray cans to switch propellant but we, we had nothing against the use of spray cans. And in fact, for example, shaving cream does not use CFCs, they use nitrous oxides. It's hard to get policymakers, reporters, and the public to fully understand the science. It's all pretty abstract. And by the early 1980s, it seems like the movement to act on these findings is losing steam. The threat of something worrisome happening in the future was not enough to move the international community. But then in 1984, some scientists working from research stations in Antarctica release a new report. They say, we have found that in this one spot above the South Pole, for a few months out of the year, 
there's a lot of ozone missing. There is a hole in the ozone layer. It was like a lightning rod. Don Blake. Holy smoke, what is this? And at that moment, meteorologists, chemists, a variety of different groups all came up with different theories. Trying to explain. What the hell is going on? Oh my God, what happened here? One of those scientists was A.R. Ravi Shankara. That was like somebody hit, hit everybody on the head because we were expecting a few percent ozone change and boom, we are talking about 30, 40% ozone depletion now in 84 and even before. Ravi Shankara was part of a team dispatched to Chile to investigate just what was going on. The stakes felt very high. The simplest analogy I could come up with was it was almost like a Manhattan project, you know? We were all completely isolated in this hotel, and all we did was work. The work involved flying planes over the South Pole and back. Looking at Antarctica in moonlight was just spectacular. They were taking ozone measurements day and night, and also looking at chlorine levels in the stratosphere, seeing how those two measurements compared. What they found? You could actually see very clearly that before the sun came up, the chlorine monoxide was low. And when the sun came up, the chlorine monoxide went up. And just like that, the ozone went down. That was kind of what people used to call the smoking gun. The smoking gun. It was proof. Molina and Roland's hypothesis, connecting CFCs, ozone, and UV light from the sun, it had been right. At a hearing on Capitol Hill, scientists linked the loss of ozone in part to the emission of chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs. The hole in the ozone layer is a major turning point. The very next year, the international community comes together to lay the groundwork for an historic treaty that would be signed a few years later, in 1987. The Montreal Protocol phased out the use of ozone-depleting chemicals, including CFCs, everywhere in the world. This is, to date, the only universally ratified treaty. Every country on this earth has signed on to the Montreal Protocol. And it was a major collective effort. It didn't just take Molina and Roland and Paul Crutzen, the other chemist who won a Nobel in 1995, for his work on nitrogen's impact on the ozone layer. It was also Stolarsky and Ravi Shankara and their collaborators, and other scientists like Susan Solomon, who stayed in Antarctica for months measuring ozone loss, and then, 30 years later, was the first to show that the ozone hole was starting to heal. Not to mention politicians and even the chemical companies, who eventually agreed to act on the scientists' findings. Because CFCs are as inert as they are, It'll be decades before the molecules that we have already released into the atmosphere break down for good. In the meantime, we'll continue to see an ozone hole above Antarctica for a few months every year. But scientists agree, we dodged a major bullet by stopping CFC production when we did. I mean, we're talking about plants that would have growth stunted. Don Blake again. We're talking about people and animals and algae 
phytoplankton, all these things, basically, you know, the earth would be just scorched. To top it all off, it turns out that CFCs are also a greenhouse gas, meaning they trap heat in the atmosphere, contributing to climate change and a warming planet. But we've now stopped producing CFCs, basically altogether, really because we were concerned about the ozone layer, not climate change. In fact, chemicals that were developed to replace CFCs, called HFCs, hydrofluorocarbons, They are also a greenhouse gas. In September of 2021, in an effort to combat climate change, the Biden administration vowed to reduce the use of HFCs by 85% over the next 15 years. The ozone hole was a pretty concrete, identifiable problem to address. But in general, it's been hard for the world to take action on climate change itself. Blake remembers talking to Sherry Rowland about this. And he says, you know, Don, if there had not been an ozone hole, then we would have continued to use CFCs. And it wouldn't have been until we observed ozone depletion above, you know, L.A. or somewhere. Mm-hmm. And, and by that time, it would have been too late. And crucially... CFCs were not the foundation of our economy. Right. Fossil fuel is. And so he says, you know, Don getting legislation passed for climate change is going to be much tougher. When Blake teaches his chemistry students this material today, he likes to remind them just how simple Molina and Roland's Nobel-winning, planet-saving science really was. I mean, it's, it's three reactions. And it's just, to me, it's just so elegant. I mean, it's, it's like, like a haiku, you know, with 17 syllables. But that it can say what, maybe you'd need to write a book about, you know? Blake actually writes haikus himself in his spare time. In October of 2020, when Mario Molina died, Blake wrote one in his honor. My friend Mario, a role model for the world, a world he helped save. A world he helped save. This is something that A.R. Ravi Shankara thinks about too how the science that Molina and Roland did helped stave off catastrophic damage. And he also thinks about the science that he and his collaborators did, flying over Antarctica to observe the ozone hole. 2050, the same year Roland and Molina had predicted that up to half of the ozone layer could be gone, it is now the earliest year we can expect the ozone hole to close for good. And it's not so far away. In 2015, I had this granddaughter, two weeks old. I was sitting there holding her. And then all of a sudden, it occurred to me that she's going to be alive in 2050. And not only that, she's probably going to be, hopefully, alive in 2100. So all these projections we make became very real. And also it became real to me that she can one day think back and say, wow, this is what Pop was talking about. Those and all is gone. And she hopefully she'll be able to see it. Thanks for listening to History This Week. For more moments throughout history that are also worth watching, check your local TV listings to find out what's on the History Channel today. 
If you want to get in touch, please shoot us an email at our email address, historythisweek@history.com, or you can leave us a voicemail, 212-351-0410. We would love to hear from you. Special thanks today to our guests, Don Blake, Richard Stolarski, and A.R. Ravishankara. And thanks to the Science History Institute for sharing its oral history interview with Mario Molina. Check out its other great resources at sciencehistory.org. This episode was produced by Julia Press. History This Week is also produced by Julie Magruder, Ben Dickstein, and me, Sally Helm. Our editor and sound designer is Brian Flood. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are McKamey Lynn, Jesse Katz, and Ted Butler. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review History This Week wherever you get your podcasts. And we will see you next week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.